Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 to just kind of set the, the pace for my devotion. I don't even know if I can call this a sermon today. It's a devotion. But Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, reads like this. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, meaning the shepherds, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year where we think about the birth of Jesus Christ and all of the implications therein, they're overwhelming. But Lord, we are grateful for this time. We're grateful for these weeks leading up to the celebration of his birth. For us to just slow down and just consider some of these wonderful things that accompany the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together today, we pray that our hearts would be open to receive that which you have for us. And Father, that we might be encouraged and filled with hope because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are Christmas carols and then there are Christmas songs. And at Christmas time, the best and the worst are on display. When we look at the songs that are sung at this time of year, it's easy to see the great divide between the lost and the redeemed. Who isn't familiar with such great songs as, we wish you a Merry Christmas, right? We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Second stanza, we want some milk and cookies and we won't go until we have some, and repeat it. Or how about White Christmas? That's a good one. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. But our all-time favorite, Jingle Bells. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, all the fields... Over the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtails ring. Okay, somebody has to exegete that for me. Making spirits bright. What fun it is to laugh and sing a slain song tonight. The sheer frivolity and silliness of the lyrics show neither care nor depth of understanding of what Christmas actually signifies. And I'm not saying that we should not sing such songs. I I enjoy singing these songs. And we're having uh, 
joint heirs over to our house this Friday, and we'll probably sing some of these songs. So don't point your finger at me. Neither am I promoting that December 25th is some biblically defined holy day. In fact, it's very doubtful that Jesus was born on December 25th. Sorry to pop your bubbles. Some claim that the climate in Israel doesn't allow for a December date. The practices of shepherds in the winter militate against that date. And the thing is, is that none of them, though, carry enough weight to compel believers not to celebrate the birth of Christ, even if we choose to do it on December 25th. It's moot. Get over it. One article I read clarified it this way. For the first three centuries, 300 years of Christianity's existence, Jesus Christ's birth wasn't celebrated at all. 300 years. The religion's most significant holidays were the Epiphany on January 6th, which commemorated the arrival of the Magi after Jesus' birth, and Easter, which celebrates his resurrection. And the first official mention of December 25th to celebrate Jesus' birth appears in an early Roman calendar from A.D. 336. So it hasn't always been so, folks. There are some believers who promote the actual banning of the celebration of Christmas, declaring it to be more closely related to pagan festivals than any sacred celebration. I, I kid you not, every year at Christmas time, I have somebody come up to me and tell me that, don't you realize this is a pagan holiday that you're celebrating? And Easter is no different. In fact, I get rebuked for using the word Easter. And it's okay. It's okay. My thin has become very, very thick since I've come back to the United States because everybody has their opinion. The truth of the matter is, I don't put stock in that. When I celebrate December 25th, I'm celebrating Christ's birth, not the date. And when I talk about Easter, I'm talking about resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. It has nothing to do with pagan holidays. As stated above, the church in Rome ordained the celebration of the Nativity on December 25th, and that was done by co-opting existing pagan celebrations such as Saturnalia, an ancient Roman holiday of lights marked with drinking and feasting that coincided with the winter solstice. That is history. That's true. This is what happened. But instead of working, the Romans spent Saturnalia gambling, singing, playing music, feasting, socializing, and giving each other gifts. Now, the noted Puritan ministers, I love the Puritans, but Increase Mather wrote that Christmas occurred on December 25th not because Christ was born on that month, but because the heathens, Saturnalia, was at that time kept in Rome, and they were willing to have those pagan holidays metamorphosed into Christian ones. You remember in 325 with Constantine, he made the Christian faith the faith of the realm. And so what they're doing is they're bringing syncretism in and they're saying, hey, listen, everybody celebrates around this time of the year. Let's just give it a Christian name and we'll just celebrate it as the birth of Christ. And that's really how we came with 
December 25th. So it does have its roots, kind of, in that. But let me ask you, how many of your children understand Christmas to be celebrating the God of Saturn? The God of the harvest? It's just, so what? You know, it's very interesting, those Puritans, those pesky Puritans, they overthrew King Charles in 1649. Their first act in Parliament was to ban Christmas. Okay? Parliament decreed that on December 25th, it should instead be a day of fasting and humiliation for Englishmen and to account for their sins. Ten years later, in the New World, Massachusetts, 1659, a general court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony made it a criminal offense to publicly celebrate the holiday and declared that whoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, that means not working, (laughs) feasting, or any other way, would be subject to a five-shilling fine. You've got to get money some way. I personally contend that the Puritans were more put off by the riotous celebrations of drunkenness and carousing and non-productivity than anything to do with the date of December 25th. It was a time to remember Christ's birth, and I'm glad that we have Christmas, to be honest with you, and that we celebrate it, because it gives us pause to at least remember that Christ was born on a day, And it turns us to the scriptures that talks about his birth. That's where I want to focus. As I said, Christmas puts on display the best and the worst. Those silly Christmas songs that I spoke of at the beginning are in stark contrast to carols that were composed by some of God's choicest servants. And incidentally, the one that I'm going to talk about today, Hark the Herald Sing, was composed during the time that the band on Christmas was going on. Consider the contrast between those silly ditties that I quoted to you and just one song by Charles Wesley. Hark, the herald angels sing. Ken Obeck, writing from 101 more hymn stories, says this, quote, Ah, like so many of Wesley's hymns, this text is really a condensed course in biblical doctrine in poetic form. A condensed course in biblical doctrine in poetic form. Following the retelling of the angelic visit to the shepherds in the initial stanza, the succeeding verses teach such spiritual truths as the virgin birth, Christ's deity, the immortality of the soul, and the second or new birth, and a concern for Christ-like living. You see, these hymns were composed in order to that men and women might sing their way not only into experience, but also singing their way into knowledge that the cultured might have their culture baptized and the ignorant might be led into truth by the gentle hand of melody and rhyme. Oh, the ditties. And now we've got Christian ditties that are every bit as ridiculous as the ones that I read. I just didn't want to quote them for you. I put the hymn, the poem, the carol in your bulletin. Look at it with me and follow along as I read it and just think of the theology contained herein. Hark, 
The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heavenly prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquered seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruin nature, now restore, now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. We don't usually sing that verse or this one. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee, the life the inner man, O oh, to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. What an incredible, incredible poem. It was written as a poem first and then put to music. Now this morning on the first day or Sunday of Advent, I, I want to convey to you the message Wesley conveyed through his hymn. And I'd like to just take three of the doctrines that he stressed in this outburst of praise, which has been sung by millions of people every Christmas season since it was first penned in the 1700s. The doctrines that I want to talk about today are very simple doctrines, reconciliation, the virgin birth, and eternal life. And in a way only Charles Wesley could do, he blends the three of them together and they make sense. It's just a marvelous, marvelous carol. So I want to talk about Wesley first, just to let you know that this hymn was written as a poem, and it was found in Hymns and Sacred Poems, written in uh, 1739. So it was right during that time that uh, the ban on Christmas was all over England. And then in 1753, George Whitfield tinkered with the lyrics, and he... Uh, inserted the newborn king phrase. So um, Charles and, and, and uh, Whitfield were friends, and they had some differences in doctrine, did you know? But they, they worked together quite nicely. They had some issues. They wrote letters to each other about those issues. Charles' goal in writing hymns was to teach the poor and illiterate sound doctrine. John Wesley said of his brother Charles, Charles' hymnal was the best theological book in existence. He wrote over 6,000 hymns. 
6,000 hymns, more than any male wrote. I believe uh, Fanny Crosby wrote 9,000, so she upped it a bit. What, a, what an amazing thing. Now, I just want to insert just a personal experience because um, we had with the Taliabo people, when we were preparing to go into the interior and work with these tribal people, I, I was talking to an Indonesian pastor. Now, Indonesians would be the national people of the country, and then you have your indigenous peoples, and um, well over, yeah, 800, 900 distinct languages with these indigenous people, Taliabo being one of them. And they had never heard of Jesus Christ. And he really challenged Mary and I. He was a young guy. He had just, uh, probably in his 30s, he had just gotten out of seminary. And he was very, very aggressive. And he said, I suppose being American, you're going to teach tribal people how to sing your American hymns, your European hymns. He kind of sneered a little bit. And he was anti-colonialist. And, of course, I was an imperialist because I was from America. And I was just trying to keep it together a little bit because it's irksome when you're challenged like that. And he said, have you ever listened to the Ambonese men singing on the bridges? They have beautiful voices. And he said, and just listen to them sing. And why should we in- incorporate European hymnody into the church here in Indonesia? And I said, I have no excuse for that. And thank you for challenging me to do that. He says, well, you said you want to work with tribal. And I said, yeah. And so when we went in to live with the tribal people. We lived with them for four years, and we finally had enough of their language. It was unwritten. We had to give them an alphabet, studied their language for four years. We finally had enough to go ahead and preach the gospel to them, and hundreds got saved, right? And so the first thing we came up against was how do we deal with prayer? Because they had mantras that they, they were shamanistic, and they had mantras that they would recite, and we didn't want them, we didn't want to go to, Matthew 6, and say, well, this is how the Lord taught them to pray and then teach them the Lord's Prayer because it would become a mantra to them. They'd incorporate it and syncretize it. So we did not do that. We said, praying is just like talking, except you're talking to God. And they developed the most incredible Trinitarian prayers we had ever heard. Well, next came to singing. I was away on furlough for the first Christmas, and my uh, co-laborer was very, very big into... Um, dramas, dramatization and everything. I'm not so much there. But he thought they'd do a nativity dramatization and everything. And so he had the people compose hymns for that dramatization. All indigenous hymns. They've written hundreds of indigenous hymns. And they have a marvelous hymnody. I actually have a, a hymnal that we put together and transcribed for them uh, so that they'd have it for posterity. And I want to tell you, there is nothing that is sweeter than listening to little kids sing these hymns as they're walking through the village. And at night, people would get together and they'd sing these hymns that they wrote. But you know what they wrote them on? They wrote them on the teaching that we were teaching them. And we were teaching them right from the Word of God. So there's just filled with God's word. And they learned doctrine. 
And we always asked them to come and share with us what they were going to present to the church as a hymn before they did to make sure their theology was correct and they heard us correctly. Um, And so it also became a check on what we were teaching them. Were we getting across the the truth that we thought we were getting across to them or were we misteaching them? So it worked both ways. So in a sense, I can kind of relate to Charles and his desire to instill sound doctrine through hymns. Now, when Wesley penned Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the first thing that we need to notice about the punctuation, if you look at your little insert in your bulletin, there are two sentences here. And I don't know about you, but I've always thought of it as one sentence, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It isn't Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it's Hark! The angels, the herald, the excuse me, the herald angels sing. So there's two sentences, and the first one is one word, hark. It's an exclamation, it's the same time a summons. Listen to this. Hear ye, hear ye, attention. Gonna tell you something. And then Wesley expresses the message that is to be listened to, and it comes from the herald angels. There were heralding angels that were singing this message out. So it's not hark the herald angels. It's hark the herald angels sing. And what are they singing about? Well, they're singing about the glory to the newborn king. And immediately we're brought into the nativity. We're brought into the birth of Jesus Christ. A king is being born, and this king is worthy of glory. To him who sits on the throne, and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The heavenly host, sing that out in Revelation 5.13. He's honored. He's glorified. Now, the hymn proceeds on to peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And we're at our first point, reconciliation. He immediately draws it into reconciliation. Reconciliation is to be reconciled, and it presupposes that there's a break in a relationship that is reconciled. It brings two persons that were enemies of one another together. Reconciliation, peace. In this case, the fractured relationships between God and sinners. God and sinners reconciled. And there's no friendship between God and sinners. If you are not in Christ, you abide under the wrath of God. And Romans 8, I could have read further, it talks about the fact that you are hostile toward him. You are an enemy of God if you're not in Christ. So there is that break in that relationship between God and man. Sin is like a huge canyon that separates sinners from God. Now, I want to give you, there's only five texts in the scripture in the New Testament that really talk about reconciliation. I'm going to go through them quickly for time's sake. We're having communion today as well. But Romans 5, 10, and 11, you can jot it down, you can turn to it if you can turn fast enough. Romans 5, 10, and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, Much more, having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. 
And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation was on Paul's mind in those couple of verses. Turn over to chapter 11, Romans eleven fifteen. 15. Uh, this is talking about the rejection of Israel and the picking up of the Gentiles. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Talking about how God now has opened up the door through Jesus Christ that Gentiles can now come in and be reconciled with God and not just Israel. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, is the reconciliation chapter. It's all about reconciliation, and it talks about the ministry of reconciliation. And it's been given to us, and therefore the call goes out from us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, be ye reconciled to God. There's a way now. And then over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. For he himself is our peace. Notice how peace is inserted here. Who made both groups into one. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's sin. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Well, you have peace because there was once enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, in Christ, he might make the two into one new man. That's the mystery of the church, where Gentile and, and, and Jew can come together into one new man called the church. i got to tell you, last night I had a dream. No, I'm not Martin Luther King Jr., but I had a dream. It was the funniest thing. I was on a tall stepladder. Shared this with Marlon this morning. I was on a tall stepladder, and I was surrounded by a whole bunch of people, and they had long hair, and they were pretty rough around the edges. And it was, I sensed in a dream, it was a church. And this one guy was spouting off, and it was just untruth, lots of untruth. So I came down off my stepladder, and I took him by the arm, and I pulled him out, and I sat him out off to the side. And I said, now you stay here and keep your mouth shut. That's not true. And I got back up on the stepladder. It's a dream, right? Okay. I got back up on the stepladder, and I was, I was talking, and it was like these people just weren't understanding. I said, do you know what the church is? Not an answer. They didn't know what the church was. I said, have you ever read the book of Acts? And they're like, what? And I, I just thought, oh, my gosh. And then I woke up. And I'm laying there in a stupor like you are usually when you wake up from a dream, and I went all the way back to Genesis, and I said, well, there is enmity between God and man because of sin, and there is a break in the relationship, but Jesus Christ came to fill that gap, and, 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 and in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see the birth of the church. And I start, I'm thinking all this, I'm kind of in and out of sleep, 
And I just thought, this is weird. Very, very strange. So many people do not know these simple concepts that if you're not in Christ, you're an enemy of God. And his wrath abides on you. If you die without making your peace with God, you're in bad shape. And it just goes on to say, he established the peace and he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. There it is again, enemies and peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. And so that's reconciliation. Finally, the last one, five places. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, Jesus Christ, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile, there's that concept of enmity against God, in your mind, and you were engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to preserve you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Suffice it to say that there's a war and people as sinners stand on one side and God in all his glory and perfection stands on the other side and he is opposed to sinners because of his purity. Sinners are literally the enemy of God, but God in his mercy mild, according to the carol that we sing, has made peace through the death of his own son. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God and sinners reconciled. Mild mercy. Why does he call it mild mercy? Because it's contrasted with the incredible fierceness of his wrath that abides on those that don't know Christ and haven't been reconciled. Are you reconciled to God? Do you want to be at peace with him? You know, sometimes when people are very, very ill and nigh unto death, I'll ask that question. Do you have peace with God? Do you want to make your peace with God? Have you made your peace with God? Well, if you do, stop right now and just tell him so. Because you don't need to come up forward. You don't need to raise your hand. You can just do that in the quietness of your own heart right now. I got an interesting email. Um, it's probably the only way emails actually flow now is through the info at beacon.org. I, I send out emails. I never get responses because none of you look at your emails anymore. But this info at beaconforthecity.org, we have a prayer place, and somebody called in for prayer. And they just said, I feel like I pray, and God doesn't hear me. I've lost something, and would you pray that he will give it back? And I just preached the gospel to them. I, I hope you're here today. I invited you to come today. Come see me after the service. But that void that this person was experiencing, that emptiness and just a sense that God wasn't hearing, God wasn't answering. 
there was still separation. That's why. And there needed to be that reconciliation once again. Well, you say, okay, I get the reconciliation bit. What about the virgin birth? Well, he, he does that. He talks to us about that. The amazing truth that sinners might be reconciled and be at peace with the completely righteous God who created them could never have come about without the reality of the virgin birth. Jesus wouldn't have been able to save us had it not been for the virgin birth. Jesus' birth was miraculous because Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And the Bible says so in unmistakable language. You know, in, in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s, there was this liberal arm of the church of mainline denominations, and they used to dispute about the virgin birth. I don't know how they could. In Matthew 123, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In Luke 127, the angel Gabriel was sent to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And further on in that same chapter, uh, verse 34, we read Mary's response to Gabriel's news that she was going to conceive in her womb and bear a son. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? You know, they'd always dispute and say, well, that just means she's a young woman. No, no. She had not been with a man. And she's saying, I don't know a lot, but I know this much. You don't have babies unless you've been with a man. And how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And then Joseph was also visited by Gabriel and given the news, received it as from God, and read in Matthew 125 that Joseph did not consummate his marriage to Mary until after Jesus was born, thereby allowing Mary to maintain her virginity. Joseph kept her a virgin. What, Joseph kept her a young woman? <laughs> I mean, sometimes, and I know that, that Bible-believing pastors that fought against and fought in these wars would get all twisted around and go into the Greek and, you know, and talk about all the different... Hey, just read the word. It just says it so clearly. So Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now this was prophesied by the Old Testament prophet. You realize this in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Plain language leaves no doubt that Jesus was born in a miraculous manner. But why? What difference does a virgin birth make? Well, God decreed before the foundation of the world that his son would become incarnate. God would take on flesh. In a nutshell, the virgin birth is important because it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God, yet fully man at the same time. A hypostatic union. His physical body he received from Mary, his mother. But his eternal holy nature was from eternity past. And Joseph the carpenter did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus Christ. He had nothing to do with it. The simple reason was that Joseph was not the father. God was the father. Jesus had no sin nature. And so he was able to die 
the sinless one, as a substitute for sinners. So the virgin birth is very important. Christ, by highest heaven, adored Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh. I love this, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He is the exact image of God according to Hebrews. Hail the incarnate deity, the enfleshed deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. <laughs> Just amazing. So the virgin birth is very important, and Wesley ties it in with that reconciliation. He would have never been able to bring reconciliation between God and sinners had he not been born of a virgin. And then thirdly, eternal life. Hark the Herald Angels Sing dedicates the entire stanza on eternal life. And it's not an unimportant subject, is it? Eternal life. Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees, people. In 2020, the fact that death is imminent was brought to the forefront of the world's collective mind. Don't you think? People were afraid. And they were afraid of dying. And the Bible tells us that since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ himself likewise also partook of the same. And through death that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You think people aren't afraid of death? (laughs) Did you catch That, the Bible says people are subject to slavery all their lives because of their fear of death. Why do you think the health thing is so big? Everybody running, everybody watching their food, everybody taking care of themselves, right? We talk about first world problems. That's a first world problem. Other places, they're just, they'll eat anything because they're hungry. But we're we're careful with our health. Why? We don't want to die. We don't want to die. It's a fear of death that is actually slavery, but there's a way of escape. You can be free. You can be free from that slavery. In the third stanza of Wesley's verse, he wrote, Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by Born that man may no more die. There's your hope. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. If ever there were a need of hope, we have it today all around us. Imagine, if you will, how absolutely petrified people are of death. Statistics now tell us that 68.5% of the world's population has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. 68.5%. 12.99 billion doses have been administered globally. And 2.2 million are now administered each day. 2.2 million are administered. Why such a response? As of May 2022, consider consider likely COVID-induced death 
via excess deaths, the 95% confidence interval suggests the pandemic to have caused between 14.7 and 24.9 million deaths. And I think that's way under. That's why everybody's running to get a vaccine. They're scared to death of death. And so with the hope of help coming from a vaccine, people flock to get vaccinated. But vaccinated people not only get the disease, they're also dying. So it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't take away that fear of death because they die. Now, we're not keeping track of how many people are dying anymore. You can't find it hardly. What if I could promise you, actually guarantee you, something that would alleviate death for you? Would you flock to me? Something that would literally take death off the table for you. Would you be interested in that? Well, that's exactly what I've been doing for the past four decades. (laughs) I'm happy to see you. Thank you for being around. But you're not flocking. We be a small flock. Praise God. Always grateful. But you would think if somebody had the antidote to death people would really be excited about that because they're really excited about the vaccine. Maybe it's that I don't have good publicity. I don't know. But people just don't seem to be that overwhelmed with the fact that you do not have to die. What do you say? What are you talking about? Well, that's the whole meaning of the Bible. It's the whole theme of the Bible. The gospel, the good news, the simplest and most clear verse, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes him will not perish, will not die. Whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. That's not hard to understand. Do you want to have eternal life? Believe in Jesus. In 1 John 5.13, he explains it even more clearly. He says, these things I've written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God in Jesus so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Now, the Catholic Church would call that the sin of assumption. You cannot have eternal security. You cannot be secure in your faith because who are you to think that you're saved and We're referred to as (laughs) born-againers by the Catholic Church, and they really don't promote knowing if you're saved. And yet the Bible says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And in case that wasn't clear enough, John also says, he who has the Son has, present tense, has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Well, hopefully... And this is why I actually did this devotional. You'll never sing, hark, the herald angels sing, in the same way. Back in 1973, the fall of 73, I was saved. I thought I was the only believer in the world. I knew no other believers. I led my wife to the Lord shortly thereafter, two weeks after. Don't ask me how, and I would not prescribe my way of evangelism back then. But we both got saved. It's got to be God's doing, right? Because we're both running the opposite way. And that 
it was the fall of 73. So that year we were living out on a farm out in uh, Marina on St. Croix. We went to a little Lutheran church right there in Marina on St. Croix. Many of you who know, you just drive up the hill off of 95 and there's that little church. We went there for uh, Christmas Eve service and they sang Joy to the World. And I remember seeing the words to Joy to the World. And for the first time, I went, are you kidding me? Far as the curse is found? That goes all the way back to Genesis. That's a curse that is because of sin. And Jesus Christ is going to take care of it. And, and, and the carol just opened up to me. It's an amazing carol. An amazing carol. Well, I hope that you never sing, hark, the herald angels sing the same way again. And the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? Make this Christmas time, you can mark it then, and then 40 years from now you can say, I remember the Christmas in 2022. Pastor did a devotion. He didn't even preach. He talked about a carol for crying out loud. He threw some verses in there just to kind of keep it, you know, safe. But he talked on a hymn, but I got saved that Christmas season. And you can look back on that. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you that there's mild mercy that's available to us, that that we do not have to die. Oh God, reach down into the hearts of people and may your spirit stir them to that second birth that they might become alive in Jesus Christ. And that their eyes might be open to the words in the carols and the words in the Bible and the words that come forth from this pulpit, Lord. And that they might rejoice forevermore because they are in Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.